Why didn't anybody stand up? <laughs> I'd like to speak to you this morning in the book of Job, chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. He disappointed the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the forward is carried headlong. They meet with darkness in the daytime, and grope in the noontime as in the night. But he saveth the poor from the sword, from their mouth, and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor hath hope, and iniquity stoppeth her mouth. The word he here has reference, of course, to God. He disappoints the devices of the crafty. The word disappointeth means that he defeats and makes void the devices, that is, the intentions of the crafty. That word crafty means cunning, it means subtle. For this reason, so their hands cannot perform their enterprise, that is, their hands or their efforts cannot perform the workings that they have planned. And he taketh the wise. The word wise there means the intelligent and the skillful in their own craftiness. And the counsel of the forward is carried headlong. The word forward means unsavory, immoral. And the word headlong simply means, you know, like to rush. Uh, you've probably used that before in your own uh, life when you talk about somebody just going headlong into something you're just saying well they're just rushing into it you know without stopping and thinking about what they're doing now these principles that's established here were applicable in the day that they were written but they're still applicable today thank the Lord there's a lot of deceitful people in the world you might not like to think about it but there's a lot of wicked and evil people in this world in fact, it's been that way since the very beginning. There's the ungodly and the godly and the righteous and the unrighteous. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, Paul tells us, he says, Be not ye unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now he's writing to church folks like you are to believers. He says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's true in marriage, that's true in business, that's true in friendships. Any kind of association you have with people, if the person that you're dealing with doesn't seem to be godly, doesn't seem to be a righteous person who doesn't seem to be a believer, then you should withdraw yourself. Always withdraw yourself. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord, it comes to the word uh, like accordance, uh, what means harmony. And what harmony hath Christ with Baal, spelled with a capital B, Baal was an Old Testament name for false gods. And what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols. Did you, did you notice in the group there, if you drew a line over here, you would have righteousness and unrighteousness over here. You would have light over here and darkness over here. You'd have Christ over here and Baal over here. You would have a believer over here and infidels over here. 
you would have the temple of God over here and idols over here. The Lord said, withdraw yourselves from them. Separate yourselves from them, and I will receive you. And I'll be to you a God, and you shall be to me a people. Now, he's talking here about fellowship, okay, and walking together with the Lord. The Apostle John tells us if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie, and the truth is not in us. Because God, who's light personified, is not going to walk in darkness. If you're walking in darkness, you're certainly not going to be walking with God. Two different classifications of people have been on this earth since the very beginning. They're spoken of in different places, different ways. But if you look in John 5 and 28, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when they are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. And there's a promise of the resurrection. And bodies will be resurrected one day when they hear the voice of the Son of God. God will call their bodies out with his voice. He says, they that have done good to the resurrection of life, they've done evil to the resurrection of damnation. There you got the good and you, you got the evil. In Acts chapter 24, verse 15, Paul speaks about the resurrection of the just and the unjust. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, in the verses following, you find where the Lord is coming back in his glory, and he shall be like a shepherd dividing his sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. He'll say to the sheep, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he'll say to the goats on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed in everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. And they shall go away into everlasting torment. But the righteous, the sheep, will go away into life everlasting. You got the sheep and you got the goats. You got the just, you got the unjust. You got the good and you got the evil. Good and evil has dwelt on this earth since the transgression of Adam in the Garden of Eden. The wicked and the righteous have dwelt together on this earth. Not compatible, of course. It's always been the design of the wicked to destroy the righteous. But we have a, a wonderful set of principles here in the fifth chapter of Job, how God can intervene and he can overrule and overpower the designs of the wicked. If you go back to the third chapter in the book of Genesis, after Adam has transgressed God's law, sin has now entered into the world, and death by sin, according to Romans 5, 12, wherefore by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Sin is now in the world. Now we have sorrow, and we have anguish, we have pain, we have heartache. We have all the things associated with this life here. And then the Lord comes and he speaks first to the man. And he says unto Adam, Where art thou? And Adam says, I heard thy voice, and I was afraid, and I hid myself. And the Lord said, Have thou eat of the tree in the garden that I commanded thee not to eat of? And Adam says, Well, the woman that you gave me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. You can already see one of the traits of man's depravity, can't you? Pass the buck. Blame somebody else. How quickly Adam said that. He says, the woman you gave me, you know, she gave me the fruit. Well, she did, but he didn't have to eat. Adam was not deceived in the transgression, we're told in the book of 1 Timothy. Then he says to the woman, what hast thou done? 
She says, well, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. He asked Adam a question, asked Eve a question, but now he speaks to the serpent. He didn't ask the serpent a question. He said, because of what thou hast done, thou shalt be cursed above all the beasts of the field. He says, thou shalt go upon thy belly all the days of thy life, and thou shalt eat the very dust of the earth. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heels. Now here's the first prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. Here's the first mention in Scripture of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at it one more time. The Lord said, I'll put enmity. The word enmity there means hostility. Hostility. I will put hostility and hatred between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Notice it's not the man's seed. This is a prophecy of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In normal uh, conception, it's always by the seed of the man. But see, this was, Christ was not born to this world with the seed of Joseph. He was born of a virgin. And he was conceived in her womb by the power of the Holy Ghost that came upon her and she conceived. So he speaks about the seed of the woman here. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It, her seed, shall bruise thy head, the vulnerable part of the body. It shall bruise thy head. That means destruction. That means death. And thou shalt bruise his heels. That means sufferings. When the Lord came into this world, about 4,000 years down the road, this prophecy is about 4,000 years from being fulfilled, but it got fulfilled. We find the Lord did indeed suffer at the hands of Satan. But we also find that Satan's head was bruised just like the Lord said it was, and he was destroyed. We might say more about that later, Lord willing. So he's talking about the seed of the woman here. I move over to the 12th chapter in the book of Genesis. And God has called a man by the name of Abram out of the land of the earth of the Chaldees. Called him to leave that land to go to the land that he would show him. He said, I'll bless them that bless thee. I'll curse them that curse thee. It says, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Let's notice that expression. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's quite a statement, isn't it? The Lord reiterates this in chapter 22. And this is a chapter where Abraham takes his son Isaac on top of Mount Moriah to a mount God would show him. After Abraham passed the test, so to speak, the trial, the Lord speaks to him. He says, in thee and thy seed. Now, he changes a little bit. In thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, Isaac is the promised seed, you see, from this, that point of view. Then we come to the New Testament, Acts chapter 3, verse 25. And the apostle Peter is speaking to some on that occasion when he had been blessed of the Lord to heal the lame man at the gate called Beautiful. And he's going to quote this. And two verses I've already given you out of the book of Genesis. The apostle Peter is going to reach back for it and get it. But he's going to say it like this. In thee and in thy seed shall all the kindred of the earth be blessed. We got all the families, we got all the nations, we got all the kindred. You know what that's beginning to sound like to me? That's beginning to sound a little bit to me like Revelation 5, 9. When the four and twenty beasts and the four elders, they cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus and they cried and they said, Thou art worthy, O Lamb, 
to open the seals of their book. For thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. It's beginning to sound a whole lot like that, doesn't it? A whole lot like that. So now the Lord has promised Abraham that through his seed, all the families, all the nations, and all the kindreds of this earth shall be blessed. Now we come over here to the book of Galatians, chapter 3 and verse 16, for an extremely important verse. Because the Apostle Paul is going to give us an explanation of that seed. He's going to say, now, unto Abraham and his seed were the promises made. But he saith not. Now, he's going to tell you what he didn't say. He said, but he saith not, as of seeds many, but of one, whose seed is Christ. He's saying here, that he never did say that through Abraham and his seeds, shall all the nations and families and kindred be blessed. But he said seed, and that seed that was under consideration was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now for that to happen, then the Jewish people are going to have to stay a people and a nation throughout all the centuries, correct? Until the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If something happens to them, then the Messiah doesn't come. Let's go to the book of Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 2, you're going to find where a man is, is born here whose name was Moses. But before we say something about that, let's go back to the first chapter. Because there's a king in Egypt now who's Pharaoh who is not acquainted with Joseph because he had been dead for a number of generations. And he sees the people of Israel have multiplied exceedingly upon the land. And so he now has a fear that if they continue to multiply and we go out to war, says they may join the enemy against us. We need to do something about that. So he's going to plan to diminish the nation of Israel. And so he sets taskmasters over them. These taskmasters make them labor and work hard with great rigor. And they were in great bondage. No doubt some of them were not able to survive the experience. Because in that day, if you was 80 years old, you worked just like you did if you was eight. Age didn't get you off the hook. So no doubt the, the labor and the intensity of the labor was so hard that many of them probably passed away. But the Bible says the more that they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. Now here is Pharaoh's design. He's one of the crafty that we're talking about here in Job chapter 5. He's one of the forward. He's one of the crafty. He's one of those who have a, has a device within his heart. His plan is to do away with these people called Israelites, these Jews that's in the land. So he thinks it out and says, well, I'll go to plan B. And he speaks to the midwives. Then wives assisted all the women in that day when they began to have, give birth and have a child. They assisted them. It says, when you assist a Hebrew woman, if it's a son, you're to kill him. If it's a daughter, keep her alive. Now just think what that would have done over a period of time. All the sons have died. There are no males. The only thing left are daughters. Eventually, the nation would be done away with. But the Lord caused the midwives to fear him greater than Pharaoh. The Bible says the midwives feared the Lord, and they didn't do what 
Pharaoh commanded them to do. And when Pharaoh questioned them about this, they said, well, the Hebrew women are just simply more lively than the Egyptian women. <laughs> They're just simply more lively. And by the time we get there, they've already had the child, and it's too late to do anything about it. That plan fails. Because God disappointed the devices of the crafty. So he thinks of another one. This time he charges every Egyptian in the land. Every Egyptian's got the task now to be on the watch when a Hebrew woman has a child. If it's a Hebrew, uh, if it's a son, then to take that son down to the Nile River and drown that son in the river. You can see what a ruthless man this is. What a cold-hearted, murderous man Pharaoh was. And there's people, been people in the world just like that down through the centuries. And there's people in the world today just like Pharaoh. When you talk about God loving all people without exception, you think God loved this man? How about Hitler? People of this nature. Just think about it. This man is a cold-hearted murderer, a killer, killing babies. And so everybody's to be a spy now. Every Egyptian's to be a spy. And then there's this family, this man and woman, who already have two children. They have Aaron, they have Miriam, and they want another child. They know the commandment of the king is, the commandment of the king is that they have a child, a son, that child, that son's to be drowned in the Nile River. But I read in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says, when Moses was born, he, by faith, when Moses was born, he was hid of his parents for three months. They have this child. For three months, they hide this child. The time comes they can no longer hide the child. And so his mother, you go to Exodus chapter 2 now, his mother makes an ark of bulrushes and puts the child in the ark of bulrushes. And of all places to take it, where would you have taken it? Would this have been your plan? They took it right down to the flag of the river. The word flag means reeds of the Red Sea there. They take that child, put it in the ark of bulrushes, and take it down to the very place where male children are to be slain and to perish and to die. And then Pharaoh's daughter comes to the shore. She comes down to bathe. She has her maidens with her. And there's a sound being made. And there's a cry of this baby. And she investigates. And they go and find this ark of the of bulrushes and they bring the ark to Pharaoh's daughter and she looks in and there's a little baby there and she takes the baby out. I want you to think about something here. There was a promise that God made to Abraham a long time, over 400 years prior to this, that's found in the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verse 13, where God speaks to Abraham. He says, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that's not theirs. And they shall serve them, and they shall be afflicted for 400 years. He said, but I will bring them out of there with great substance. And Abraham, you're going to go to your fathers in peace. You're going to die in a good old age. Abraham can go to his grave in peace and knowing that his seed that would be in the land of bondage for 400 years, one day would come out. We come to the days of Joseph, and Joseph is about to die. You come to Genesis chapter 50. And Joseph tells the Israelites, he says, Know of a surety that God will surely visit you and will bring you out of this land and into the land he promised our father. God made this promise to Abraham. He made to Isaac. He made to Jacob. And Joseph is a son of Jacob. And Joseph is quite aware of it. 
He mentions that twice. God will surely visit you. That will take place. We know how much longer it's going to be. It's going to be 200 years down the road before it takes place. But Joseph is positive and convinced it's going to take place because he knows that's what God said and that's what God promised. He said, God shall surely visit you and bring you out of this place. And when you do, he says, you get my bones and you carry my bones out with you too because they don't belong down here. So now we come to the day of Exodus chapter 2. God has a man in mind to bring his people out of there. His name is Moses. Moses is born at a time when there is the threat of death upon all male children. In fact, there's a command of death upon all the male children. But God in this marvelous providence is going to watch over this little boy, this little baby. And not only is he going to save his life, he's going to allow this, this man, this baby to grow up into a man. And he's going to grow up in the courts of Egypt. He's going to cause Pharaoh to give him room and board and a free education. The very man who 80 years down the road will come back to the land of Egypt and bring the Israelites out of there and accomplish the very thing that Pharaoh's been trying to prevent all along. You know why it turned out that way? Because of our text. God disappointeth, makes void, defeats the counsel of the wicked, the craftiness, the subtlety of the wicked of this world. They're crafty. That's, and you go to Genesis chapter 3, the very first thing said about the serpent. It says the serpent was more subtle than any creature or any uh, beast that God created. That means he was more crafty, more cunning. And that's the way Satan is. He's cunning. He's crafty. He'll, we- he'll weasel his way in. He'll slip right in. The smallest little crack in your life. Smallest little crack in your family. The smallest little crack in the church. The smallest little crack in a country. He'll just weasel his way in. Get right in there. He's crafty. He's wily. He's cunning. There's never been a, an animal that was known as a great hunting animal that was as crafty as the devil is. We see here that the Lord overrules. He overrules the efforts of Pharaoh. Three plans Pharaoh had to destroy the nation of Israel, but he fails in all three accounts because there's a God in glory who made a promise many, several hundred years before that to Abraham that there's going to come a day when your people, my people, they'll, yeah, they'll live in that land for 400 years, but I'm going to bring them out of there. And when they come out of there, they'll come out with great substance. When you think about that and you study them coming out, you'll find that they borrowed jewels of gold and silver and earrings and everything else from the Egyptians, and the Egyptian gave it to them. Wonder why? I doubt very seriously here this morning, there's a sister in this congregation. There's somebody wanting to come and ask you for your jewelry, knowing you wouldn't get it back, that you'd give it to them. You think? <laughs> I know the sister's pretty good. They kind of like to hold on to that. <laughs> so I don't think they would. But they gave it willingly. If you're reading the 78th Psalm, you're going to find when they came out across the Red Sea, the Bible says there's not one feeble person among them. Now, when you're reading that, when you're reading that, you need to stop and pause a minute. What do you mean, not one feeble person among them? We got feeble people in our congregation. You, might, you have feeble people in your own family. Here we're talking about well over a million people, well over a million people, and they crossed the Red Sea, and not one feeble person among them? You know they had to have the aged. You know there were those that were crippled. You know there was those uh, 
uh, that had illnesses and afflictions one kind or another. You know there was little children. But yet when they came across the Red Sea, God stepped in and God overruled and gave them power, gave them health, and gave them strength. They all came across there, not one feeble person among them. Pharaoh and all of his army were drowned in the Red Sea. Hope you can see our text in this story right here. Let's come over here to the days of Esther. In the book of Esther, you know it's the only book in the Bible that the word God's not in, but God's in it. <laughs> his name's not in it, but he's in it, I can assure you. And the Jews are in captivity. And there's a very wicked man by the name of Haman that's been promoted. And when Haman walked by the gate of the city, all the people would bow down to him except one man. His name was Mordecai. The people says his name is Mordecai. Either way you want to say it, I'll take it. I, I call him Mordecai. I believe that's the way it's spelled. But anyway, Mordecai is there. But he stands up. He will not bow down. This makes Haman very angry. You know, here's a man who's just been promoted. Everybody's bowing down to him except one man. Of course, this one man is a Jew. Haman is so mad that he begins to devise a plan within his own wicked heart to destroy not only Mordecai, but destroy every Jew in, that, in the provinces of the kingdom. He comes to the king. And he brings charges against this people. And he says, these people are up to no good. He said, it's not in your interest, your welfare, to allow these, these uh, people to continue to suffer and to continue to live. He said, I'll give 10,000 talents of silver to any man that will rise up against them. And the king signed a decree giving him that power to do that. And then you find where messengers took this message to every providence in the kingdom of that day. It was on a certain day of a certain month that every Jew in that land was to be slain. Men, women, young and old, didn't matter. Every Jew was to be slain. If that plan works, the Messiah doesn't make it into this world, does he? But that plan's not going to work. There's a little something you find recorded in the last part of Esther chapter 3. And you're going to find where Mordecai, who is at the gate, overheard a plan that two men who were not too far away, you might say, from the king in position, were plotting to assassinate the king. He reveals that plan to the proper authorities. They investigate it, find out it's true, and they hang these men, and it's recorded in the Chronicles. And then you move on reading about something else. And you read about Esther uh, having a banquet for the king and for Haman, etc., etc. But you come to Esther chapter 6. After chapter 6, the king starts to go to sleep, but he can't sleep. You ever been there? <laughs> you know, when I go to bed, if I can't go to sleep, I just start meditating on the Word of God. And most of the time, that helps me. If I don't go to sleep, at least I, uh, I discover a little jewel here and there. So I just try to meditate on the Word of God. And when I get up early in the morning, if it's too early for you to get up, I just start trying to meditate on the Scripture. I try to utilize my time. He can't, he can't sleep, so he calls for the Chronicles. I guess if there's anything at all that would make you sleepy, if somebody said, I can sit beside you here and read the church minutes, uh, you'd probably get sleepy real fast. Or you can do like Brother Oscar Sullivan used to do. When he couldn't go to sleep, he told me one day, come through the handshake. I know I've told this before, but that's just a lovely story. 
And he said, Brother Lars, I just want to let you know, sometimes I can't go to sleep. He said, well, I can't. I just get one of your CDs and put them on right there. Next thing you know, I get drowsy and just go right off to sleep. I said, thank you, Brother Oscar. Any more compliments? <laughs> he meant it as a compliment. <laughs> I was glad it worked. <laughs> so they bring the Chronicles. He's reading the Chronicles. And I'm sure it was a very thick book, but somehow or another, he reads the very act that was recorded concerning Mordecai when he revealed the plan against the king's life. King didn't even know anything about it. He just reads where there was a man that saved his life. He don't even know anything about it. He said, what was done to bring this man honor? They said, nothing. He's mulling it over. He says, who's out there? He heard somebody, I guess, whatever. And... Uh, he says, it's Haman. He says, tell him to come in. Haman comes in. He says to Haman, what would you do for a man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman, he is so full of pride. If you want to see a poster child for pride, here he is. Haman is so full of pride, the Bible says he thinks within himself, well, the king must be talking about me. King must be talking about me. So he says, I, I, here's what I knew. He says, I, I put him on the king's horse. I, I put the king's crown on his head. I put the king's apparel around his shoulders. And then I'd get somebody to just lead him down the, the main street of the city here, proclaiming this is a man whom the king delights to honor. And you know, the king liked that idea real good. You know, Mordecai, I had a good idea. He said, yeah, I like that. He says, uh, uh, let's do that. You go get my horse and, and put Mordecai on it. And he says, uh, put my crown on his head, put my apparel around his shoulders, and you, you take, uh, you know, I want you to be the man to lead him right down the street. <laughs> oh, don't you know? I mean, I hope you don't know. <laughs> how Haman must have felt in that, how humiliated he was uh, because God disappoints the devices of the crafty. He takes the devices of a man's heart, no matter what they may be, and he can overrule it. He can overpower it. He can turn it around and change it. And that's exactly what he did here with Haman. Haman is distraught. Prior to this, you find where Haman devised a plan where he was going to have Mordecai hung, so he had gallows built. You know, it wasn't just a, uh, just a, a minimum uh, a height and one thing or another getting the job done. No, it was a huge, huge structure. It was going to be a, a magnificent show when he got this man hung on the gallows. He comes home and tells his wife this story. She says, you're in trouble. <laughs> she says, you're in trouble. And she's the one who, who told him what to do to start with about building the gallows. She says, if this is the case here, he says, you, you're gone. And sure enough, he was. And so the first thing you know is found out that Esther reveals unto the king that Haman is a man who wants to see her people destroyed. And this disturbs the king to such an extent he orders to have Haman hung on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. You know, in the book of Proverbs, we find where Solomon tells us, he that diggeth the pit shall fall into it himself. Let's get to the laws of sowing and reaping. Whatever a man sows, that shall also reap. Now, the world says what comes around goes around. They just don't know what they're saying. Uh, they're saying whatsoever a man soweth, that shall they also reap. They just express it in a different manner, a different way. If, more, if Haman's plan is successful, 
on a certain day of a certain month, every Jew was to be destroyed, every Jew would perish, every Jew would be slain. If that plan is successful, then the Jewish people are annihilated on this earth here and the Messiah cannot come into this world. Let's go into the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 2. In the book of Matthew, chapter 2, you find where there are some wise men who come from the east to the city of Jerusalem. And they come with a, a question and a statement. They said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Says, we have seen his star, not a star, but his star. There were a lot of stars in the sky, no doubt, but one star stood out. It was the star of David. We've seen his star, and we have come to worship him. That's what wise people do. They worship the Lord. That's the sign of a wise person, a desire to worship God, committed to worship God, come to the house of God on a regular, systematic basis to worship God. Wise men do that. It says, we've come to worship him. A lot of speculation about the wise men. So there's a couple of things we do know about them. First of all, we know we, they came geographically from the east. We know that being the case, they were not Jews, they were Gentiles. We know it wasn't just one man, it was men, but we don't know how many. It's often said three, that's purely speculation. Because they gave three gifts, and we'll see later on. That doesn't mean it was three men. In fact, uh, if you do a little intense research and study on all this, in all likelihood, there was quite a few more than just three. So they're in Jerusalem. And they ask the question, where is he that's born king of the Jews? They think they're in the right place, but they're not. Where is he that's born king of the Jews? We have followed his star, and we've come to worship him. The Bible says that Herod and all Jerusalem, when they heard these words, were troubled. This is Herod the Great, by the way, and according to historians, he'd been ruling about 35 years. Here's a little baby, and the news is, here's somebody that's come, going to be this king of the Jews. It's got him quite disturbed. So he calls for the chief priests and the scribes. These were the people who would have studied the Old Testament diligently, and he inquires of them uh, when this should take place. Where, where should the king of the Jews be born? They said be born in Bethlehem of Judea, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Be born in Bethlehem, Judea. So that's the first thing he does in his plan. He gathers them together to find out exactly at least in general, where he was be born. So then he calls the wise men privately, that is privately, and diligently inquired of them of when the star first appeared. By this, he's able to determine the age of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he tells them, he says, go to Bethlehem. He's going to tell them where he's born. He knows he's born in Bethlehem, just not exactly where. He says, you go into Bethlehem, and when you have found him, you come again and bring me word that I may go and worship him. Again, we see in this man, a ruthless man, an ungodly man, a wicked man, an evil man, and we're going to find out in a just short period of time, a man who didn't mind committing murder. You go to Bethlehem, and when you have found him, you come and bring me word again that I may go and worship him. So, the wise men left, and now that star reappears. And they follow that star into Bethlehem to the very spot where the Messiah 
is at. He's been born. He's less than two years old. In this chapter, you'll find he's referred to as a young child nine times. Now, this is totally separate from the shepherds uh, that we find recorded in the book of Luke. The Lord revealed to the shepherds the birth of his son by an angel, but he revealed this, the wise men by a star. By all accounts, these wise men were stargazers. These wise men were philosophers who depended upon the stars a great deal in their deliberations and their decisions. So the Lord spoke a language they could understand, didn't he? That's why he gave them the star and gave the uh, angel, uh, angel to the shepherds. So they go there, and sure enough, they find the young child in Mary. And the Bible says when they did that, they fell, up, 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 uh, fell down on the ground in front of them. Here's wise men who come a long ways. They come from the east. They follow this star, and they find this little baby there, and they fall down and worship him. They didn't fall down and worship them. They didn't fall down and worship Mary. They fell down and worship the Messiah. Then they opened up their treasuries, and they had gold and frankincense and, and myrrh. Um, if you trace all that, uh, gold obviously was very valuable. And Mary and Joseph being poor, I'm sure can really use that gold. And God provided for them at this particular time when his son is born in this world, the Messiah, he provides gold by the hands of the wise men. The frankincense and myrrh was used a great deal in the offerings and sacrifices in the Old Testament day. It was used in burials and things of that nature. Perfume, it was something that people really enjoyed having. And not everybody could afford to have it, but now Joseph and Mary have it as a free gift from God through the wise men. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a marvelous act of God's providence? God's going to give them gold, going to give them frankness, going to give them myrrh. They can't afford it. They can't buy it. They can't go out and get it. So God just brings it to them and lets the wise men give it to them. <laughs> And then the Bible says that the wise men being warned of God went out another way. They didn't do what Pharaoh said. Or Herod, excuse me. They didn't do what Herod said. Herod said, come again and bring me word. I may go and worship him. But the wise men don't do that because they're warned of God. And they leave and they go another way. And then an angel warns Joseph to take Mary and the young child and to leave Jerusalem. Leave Bethlehem. And go down into Egypt. He says, for there are those that seek to kill the child. God intervened. God overruled. Suppose Herod's plan had worked. Because here's what Herod's going to do. He's going to give a command that all the children in the Bethlehem general area there, two years old and under, all children are to perish and they're all to be slain. Killing little children and babies is nothing new. We've already seen it back during the days of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. We saw it would have been the case with Haman over there in the book of Esther. And we see it to be the case right here in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the prophecy is found in the book of Jeremiah is fulfilled where, um, where, where Rachel is weeping for her children. That's being fulfilled right here. God intervened and he disappointed the devices of the crafty. He brought it to naught. He made it void. He defeated it. Could there be any doubt whether he would defeat it or not? Could it be any doubt that uh, he would overcome them? No, it would not be because he had promised unto Abraham, in thee and thy seed, call that Jesus Christ, shall all the nations, all the families, and all the kindred of this earth, they shall be blessed. That could not happen. The Messiah didn't come into this world. The Messiah came into this world. Now let's think back to Genesis 3.15 just for a moment. 
I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Says it, her seed shall bruise thy head. Did that take place? The Messiah will grow up. The Messiah will become age 30. He'll have a three year and a half ministry and age of 33 and a half, the Messiah goes to Calvary. He'll go voluntarily. Oh, the soldiers will take him, but they couldn't have took him had he not allowed them to do so. He had power to lay down his life. He had power to take it again. He goes and he'll be crucified, hanging upon a cross, suspended between heaven and earth as a son of God representing God and representing heaven, as a son of man representing the earth and representing his people here. He's, hung, he's hanging, suspended between, again, heaven and earth. And he pours out his life. He sheds his blood. Something happens right there. I want to put a point to you here this morning for you to think about. Did you know that you and I and everybody here were all saved at the same place at the same time? Did you know that? Did you know that all of you and me and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, etc., 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 and the Apostle Paul, and Peter, and James, and John were all saved at the same time at the same place? We were all saved at Calvary. There's where the sin debt was paid for all the elect of God. There's where you were justified. There's where you were uh, redeemed. That's the very place where you were reconciled, redeemed, and justified. There's the legal aspects of your salvation. I was preaching on last Sunday, took place. There's where God the Almighty was satisfied. I love the verse over in Isaiah chapter 53, when it says, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. I'm telling you today, I preach a satisfied God. I preach a God that's satisfied with the work of his son. I preach a God that's satisfied that the fact that his elect family has been redeemed, justified, and reconciled, and one day will come home to be with him in glory. He's satisfied about the matter. Now, I've given this illustration before. I'll give it again here. Back in the, back in the day, when kids went to school, when children went to school, my wife didn't like to call them kids, so when the children went to school and they came home to the report guard, they got an S, N, or a U. U, unsatisfactory. N, needs improvement. S, satisfactory. We like to see all them S's, right? <laughs> if they got an S, did that mean they were perfect? If they got an S, did that mean they got a hundred for sure on every test, answered every answer perfectly that during that six weeks? No. I remember when you get a, got an A, if you had an average of 94 or better, you got an A. You get an S, right? God has a higher standard than that. God's S has a higher standard. God would not be satisfied if one person, just one whom he gave to the Son, that the Son died for, would not be with him in glory, the Father wouldn't be satisfied. But I'm telling you, the Father's satisfied. He saw the travail of the soul of his Son he saw redemption in his son. He saw justification in his son. He saw reconciliation in his son. On the cross is where the elect family of God were represented in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and God Almighty was satisfied with the work. You know what it means to be justified? It means that you stand just before a just and holy God. It means that you stand innocent before God. How can that possibly be? You know you're not innocent. You know that you're vile. You know that you're a sinner. You know that you fall short. You know that you're, you're, you're frail and weak and undone 
And, uh, you know, you just see yourself, I believe, I hope you do anyway. I see myself as that publican in Luke chapter 18 when he smote himself upon the breast and, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I was thinking this morning, actually, I was trying to give a little meditation to some of this. I've never been in a courtroom being tried. Never have, thankfully. <laughs> hope I never am. I've never had charges brought against me to where I wound up in a courtroom and had to have a jury listen to the case and then wait for the jury to go out ever how long they stayed out thinking what is their decision going to be. But I thought, how, how would a man, how would a person feel like that? I don't know. I don't want to know. I don't want to know what kind of feeling that would be thinking they come back and they say guilty, what that would mean, what the consequences would mean. Or if they said not guilty, how I would feel. I don't know what the decision is going to be. And they come back in and they file in and the man stands up to give the verdict. I want to tell you this morning, the verdict is in. And I don't mind shouting from the rooftop, you're not guilty. You're free. Blood's been shed, payment's been made. You've been redeemed and reconciled and justified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not guilty. You're innocent. <laughs> You're innocent. Do you hear me? <laughs> How can you be innocent? Because Jesus represented you and he was innocent. He was holy, he was righteous, he was sinless. The verdict is in. Every time a gospel preacher preaches the truth of sovereign grace, he's telling God's children, you're innocent. You, you've been freed from sin. The, the bondage of the law of sin and death no longer applies in your case, no longer applies in your life. You are heaven bought and you're heaven bound. Over how much time you have here on this earth, uh, give God the praise and the glory and the honor and commit yourself to serving him. And when death comes to this body, my friends, just remember this, you'll be released from this world into a place of glory where none of the things that bother you in this life can ever be permitted to enter in. God disappoint the devices of the crafty. Aren't you glad? And that's got a practical application even into this day. There's several other examples to give in a more, uh, in, a, in a different vein. And today in America, I'm telling you, there are those who are above us in power and authority in positions of, of which they can make decisions that affect our lives. The best thing you can do and I can do is to try to live a godly life, try to live a committed life. The Bible says, what shall the righteous do? The foundations be destroyed. And we see our foundations being destroyed seemingly on a regular basis here in this life. But there's something you can do. Live a godly life. Live a committed life. Live a life of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Honor him to the very best of your God-given ability. And then do your civic duty. And you go and you vote. And then you pray and you commit yourself to God and put everything in his hands. And then you go on about your business and you have peace at night and you sleep well at night. You can do that. If you do that, remember God can disappoint the counsels of the, of the wicked. He can turn things around. They might mean one thing and God can intervene and cause them to do quite another.